Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 Welcome to Tell Me the Story with Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us for a weekly study of the Bible as we read verse by verse with the original context and languages at the forefront, illuminating the stories at hand. Today's episode is one of those where we cover a lengthy genealogy. But wait, before we put up the walls of disinterest, let's actually make an attempt to hear what the text is laying out. It is very likely that the clever use of words attributed as names for the various players in the stage of the genealogy paint a particular picture, whether vague or distinct, and that picture is there for us to take in. So let us do so. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Aholibama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zebion the Hivite, and Basimath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebioth, and Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz, Basimath bore Reuel, and Aholibama bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. So in the very first verse, we have a reminder of that tale that describes Esau's coming in from a weary hunt while Jacob is making a lentil stew, only for Esau to beg and plead for his brother to give him some of that ha-adom, ha-adom, seemingly unaware of the nature of the stew being that of a red lentil variety. He instead attributes its quality to that of something reminiscent of blood. Remember in Hebrew, the word for blood is dam, and the word adam for man is strongly reminiscent of the image and redness of blood. It's not simply the color. Later translators call these two completely separate words, but when you do that, you lose the literary significance of it all. Esau, in his moment of fear, when he thought he was so weary, even to the point of dying, asks to drink of this blood stew, because blood is a life-giving substance. Remember Genesis 9, where God says that humans shall not eat of the blood of the animals, which is their life. So Esau is marked by this type of ravishness. He desired to drink blood in his last moments and hope to live a little bit longer. He was weak and did not call upon God. He looked instead to satiate himself with that which he thought would give him life. And he is forever marked with the secondary name that reminds us of this story, Edom. The text made the effort to remind us of that story by calling Esau Edom in verse 1 of this chapter, so it's important to keep that in mind. We then go into the actual genealogy starting with his wives. The text reminds us that his wives are Canaanites, not Mesopotamians. We must remember that dichotomy. All the central figures the text follows got their wives from their own family in Mesopotamia, the city. Esau is the first character in the patriarchal family of Abraham to deviate from this practice. His first wife is Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. Ada was also the name of one of Lamech's wives. Lamech, the descendant of Cain and the first human king in scripture. Ada means an adornment or decoration. 
Her father was Elon, which refers to a terebinth tree and carries the connotation of strength. It is also important to remember that the Hittites are not necessarily enemies in scripture just because they are Canaanites. Remember in chapter 23, Abraham has peace with them and acquires a tomb from them to bury his dead. So we have Ada, the adornment, daughter of the terebinth. This could be suggesting that Ada was a princess of sorts, and Elon is a ruler or king of sorts, as the symbolism of the terebinth tree communicates stature and strength. Esau's second wife was a holy bama, which means tent of the high place, which is certainly regal, if not priestly, uh, in character. The text also goes through the effort of telling us her lineage, which is that she is the daughter of Anna, and Anna is the daughter of Zibion the Hivite. Anna means to answer, testify, and sometimes sing. Zibion means a hyena, according to the BDB, but comes from a root meaning dyed or colored stuff, and seems to be more of a reference to possibly ornate dyed clothing more than it is a hyena, and it is probably a reference to a colorful hyena that uh, resembles you know, that type of clothing. And I can't really see where they're getting the interpretation of hyena from otherwise, unless it's from a later post-authorship, Semitic example, or translation. The last detail to notice is that this line is of the Hivites, the same people who were murdered by Jacob's sons due to the actions of Shechem. Though whether or not it was exactly the same group of people is unclear, uh, maybe they were just described the same way as Hivites. So Oholibama is the tent of the high place, the daughter of singing or testifying the daughter of the dyed clothing. The third wife is basimat, which means perfume or fragrance, and comes from the root besim, which refers to spices used for incense or fragrant oil. She was the daughter of Ishmael, which we should all hopefully remember, means God hears. And the text also includes a detail that she was the sister of Nebaioth, which could be a reference to fruitfulness, or the verb meaning to look in observation. Now, my translations are by no means perfect, but with some fluidity allowed, it seems to be that the name of each of Esau's wives and the names of their family members are all evocative of three important facets of your typical early human civilization in this geographical locale. The names of the first wife, Ada, and her father, Elan, are both evocative of tribal leadership and or regal status. The second, Oholibama, and her lineage is evocative of priestly station and or the religious life of a culture with the mention of a high-placed tent, singing slash testifying, and dyed clothing. And the third wife, Basimat, and her lineage is evocative of temple worship with the mentions of fragrant oil, perfume, uh, God hearing, and fruitfulness slash observing in general, which would be, you know, the observations of signs and symbols, uh, etc., which all take place in a temple setting. Continuing with the theme of temple language, the next son on the list is Eliphaz. Literally in Hebrew, this name means my god is gold, or perhaps made from gold. This is obviously an idolatrous statement. The difference between the god of scripture and the false gods of the nations is the fact that the nations worship created things, as St. Paul says in Romans 1.25. The god of scripture does not exist in this way. He's unseen. Rather, God is heard through the recitation of scripture. So this is obviously a sign of Esau's line going off the rails. But as we find out later in the scriptural narrative, the Israelites are no better and mirror much of this themselves. This is the hallmark of every civilization. The next name is Reuel, which means friend or, more accurately, associator with God. It is interesting to note when these names get repeated. 
Reuel is one of the names of Moses's father-in-law at the start of the book of Exodus. He's a Midianite priest who is also a shepherd. He's a priest without a temple, if you will, which makes sense because his mother, Basemeth, has a similar association with the temple. Just something to keep in mind. Next, we have the three sons of Aholibama, who are Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. Jeush means one who sends aid, Jalam means one who conceals, and Korah is an interesting one, and it means to make oneself bald. Baldness is a recurring motif in the scriptures. To make oneself bald is a bad thing in scripture, but to become bald due to old age, or if God makes someone bald, is a sign of wisdom and cleanliness. You can see this dichotomy early in the book of Leviticus. In chapter 13, verse 20, it says, If a man's hair falls out of his head, he is bald, he is clean. Likewise, in chapter 21, verse 5, it says, They shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. The fact that Korah is representing the former is telling as the name Korah will become synonymous with rebellion on the one hand and the temple on the other. Korah was the name of Moses' cousin who revolts against him in the book of Exodus. And there are portions of the Psalms which are addressed to the sons of Korah, who at this point are identified as the chief liturgical musicians of the temple. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. So here we have an interesting detail which we have heard in other stories. Esau chooses to take his family and possessions into another land, but it's not because of disputes between the two families. It's because the land could not support them due to their livestock. It's a good thing that there is no dispute between the families like there was between the houses of Abraham and Lot, or between Isaac's house and the Philistine population, but it is still unfortunate for a different reason. They are growing livestock to the point that the land no longer yields enough food for all of them. That is one of the misfortunes that the Bible is constantly critiquing. Humans settle and rape the land they settle on. Whether they create an overabundance of humans or livestock, the result is the same. Eventually, when the land is bled dry and no longer yields its fruit due to the constant working of agriculture, the humans will move on. Or like we have here, if a collection of people are too plentiful that they can no longer all benefit from the ground they work, they divide and go different directions. There isn't anything inherently bad about this situation in Esau's Toledot, but it paints a certain picture that allows us to see but one of the many negative consequences of human settlements and early, stagnant city dwellings. And the text isn't shying away from this understanding either. If the two parties continued moving and were migratory and moved through the wilderness dependent upon God, there would be plenty for them. But they are taking on the role of farmer or cattleman, taking control of the land for their own benefit, and the land does not yield to the control of humans. The text tells us that Esau moved and settled in Seir, which is the Hebrew word ir for city, uh, with an additional scene attached to the front. It also has a double function uh, as being from the root sin ayin resh, which means hair, and that was the word used to describe Esau as a hairy baby. This, of course, calls us back to his birth and his function as the firstborn of Isaac, 
where the text told us his hair was like an edaret, or glory cloak, evocative of royalty. So naturally, we are led to believe Esau did not remain dependent upon God in the wilderness, but like every human community, went to start their own city and or empire. This is drilled into us constantly by the three reminders in the first portion of the chapter that Esau is Edom, followed by the drawn-out list of chief and king figures of the Edomites that we are about to go through. And of course, it also matches with the first section we read, where Esau's wives' names denoted aspects of a basic human socio-political and religious landscape. And that's to be expected when we remember that Edom is from the same root as Adam, meaning man. The lineage of the Edomites is almost a retelling of the Canaanites, who later will be rendered as the Kenites in the Bible. Unlike the line of Cain, though, the line of Edom is representative of both the city dwellers and the Bedouin shepherds of the desert. This line contains both because, once again, it is holistic of all human civilizations. It's as if the lines of Seth and Cain are combined. It paints a sad picture that even shepherdic society is prone to the influence and security of city life. Right, and this is actually very reminiscent of the early Arab cultures, pre-empire, pre-scripture, pre-writing, pre-history, etc. Evidence suggests that there wasn't a clear moral or societal divide between city-dwelling communities and Bedouin communities. Both have their advantages and disadvantages regarding correct behavior from a scriptural point of view. If everyone lived in cities, we already know what it would be like, because that's kind of how we are today. There would be greed, cheating, swindling, stealing, murder, lust, envy, etc. Not that those things can't exist outside of a city culture, but they are much more likely to happen in a city and much more rampant. For every person's success in the city, someone is wronged. These patterns of behavior are much more present in an overpopulated city and are almost a given. However, if everyone rid themselves of those possessions of the city and instead moved to the wilderness and were migratory like the Bedouins, the wealth of those populous parties would eventually outgrow their britches and start competing for resources or simply strip the land of its yield, robbing others of resources like what happened between the houses of Jacob and Esau. Existing as a Bedouin is the scriptural ideal, but it is not the practical ideal. If everyone in every city took up this lifestyle, we would soon war with one another once again, whether we met resistance against other groups in the wilderness like Jacob illustrated several times in his journeys to and from Mesopotamia. There is a duality then in Arab culture, the settled people of the Fertile Crescent and the wanderers of the desert who don't have the luxury of constant access to moisture and fertile soil. They have to move and find resources. The duality rises gradually over time, and these two different lifestyles are constantly interacting with one another. That is where the brilliance of the scriptural Meshalim comes to light. Scripture isn't calling everyone to be a shepherd in the Syrian wilderness. Remember, there is no is and there is no be in the Semitic languages. There is, however, a like. The Bible is interested in teaching through stories. It is not interested in your personal interests and day-to-day -day lifestyle. In any lifestyle, in any situation, you can be like a Bedouin shepherd. The stories of scripture are written to call us into being like the Bedouin shepherd, the shepherd who maintains two responsibilities, taking care of the lesser in their household, which is their flock, and taking care of the outsider who stumbles across their path, summarized in the universal command to love your neighbor as yourself. There are plenty of examples of shepherdic type of people in scripture who don't do these things because, like any good literature, the Bible has nuance and maintains faith in its audience to hear the subtleties of the writing. Not every Bedouin shepherd is good. That's why both lifestyles exist in Arab history even to this day. 
Both lifestyles can include scripturally adherent people, and either lifestyle can include murderers and cheats. It is in the wilderness, however, that one must be completely reliant on God to be fashioned into a scripturally adherent person. In the city, it is much easier to be reliant on yourself and your king and your own working hands. But in the wilderness, there is nothing. There's no water, there's no food, there is nothing. Only God. God is not absent from the city, but one cannot see that he is there unless they have walked through the wilderness and realized their own fragility. Right, and living like a shepherd is much harder. And as we see from Genesis 4, it's not synonymous with survival. Abel lived according to God's command, and he was a shepherd, but he ended up dying for it. This is the paradox, but that's also the rule of faith. And when one is following God, your life is no longer your own, but God's to either keep or take away. So let's continue on with the text. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau, Reuel, the son of Basimath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Timon, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Reuel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mitzah. These are the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibamah, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore Esau, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. The first thing we should notice is that there are a lot of repeats here from earlier. However, now Esau and his family are in Seir, so it is not a repetition. There are repeated names of characters from earlier, but they are in a different locale, therefore they have a different function. The first primary difference is with Esau. In verse 1 of this chapter, the text simply calls him Esau and reminds the audience of his secondary and equally functional name of Edom. Now in verse 9, it calls him Esau, but instead, again calling him Edom, it calls him the father of the Edomites. Again, it's subtle, but it is different. His immediate sons are referred to as the sons of Esau. It is no longer about a wandering shepherd family in the wilderness. Esau is ushering in a nation of people and they are the sons of their father, i.e. they image their father, and they will go on to produce their own children who make up this coming nation. This nation will evoke shepherd living as well as settled city dwelling. Like Blaise said, Edom is from the same word as Adam, so we are being told of a new age, a new functional genesis of humanity. But again, they are from the same family. All of humanity, in its different expressions, are connected. Even if we divide lifestyles and cultures, all are human and all are held to one account, which is adherence to the will of God. In this Toledot of Esau and Seir, we have a few differences from earlier. We are now told of Eliphaz's sons and Reuel's sons. However, we do not hear about the sons of Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. So, let's keep all of this in mind. Eliphaz's first son was Teman, which denotes the image of being at the right hand. Omar is next, and his name means one who is speaking or talking or uttering. Zepho basically means watching or gazing. Gatam could refer to a people who strike, i.e. an army. And Kenaz is related to Cain and probably refers to a hunter or a spear holder. 
We are also told that Eliphaz has a concubine named Timnah, which comes from the root mana, and could allude to the idea that Eliphaz's relations with this concubine were less than glamorous, because the root her name comes from refers to something withheld or hidden. The son that she births is named Amelek, which comes from the root meaning Amal, meaning to labor or toil. Even more symbolism. The concubine, the slave wife child producer, is unglamorously withheld or restrained, thus thought lowly of, and her child doesn't have a lofty name like the other sons, whose names are evocative of a royal court or an army. But this son has a name that refers to hard labor, a far cry from the dignity and easy living of royalty. Perhaps this could remind us of Ishmael and Hagar. The concubine was treated as a lesser human, and her and her son were cast out of the house. So it makes sense. Uh, and also, Ishmael was already mentioned in chapter 3 as Basimat's father, so all of this should already be fresh in our mind to connect these concepts and these images as we hear the story. Moving on, we also have to talk about Reuel's sons. Uh, the first one is Nachet, uh, which means to go down, descend, settle, or to bend. Um, Nachet, then, is more of an ominous name. Of course, the act of settling somewhere for a long time is bad news in scripture because this is what gives rise to the city. It's also the word that is often used when one goes down to the grave in scripture. So the immediate takeaway from this is that it refers to death. The next one is Zorach, or Zerah, as it appears in English. Uh, this means to rise or come forth. Uh, this is where the English versions do us a bit of a disfavor. When we hear Zerah, immediately we think of the seed, which in Hebrew is Zerah. But uh, these are different words. Zerach ends with a chet, and Zerah ends with an ayin, so they are a different root. I just wanted to point that out because it's tricky when the transliteration fails to make the distinction there. But this word is also ominous because it is often used to talk about God's wrath and punishment. For example, it is used to describe the appearance of leprosy in 2 Chronicles 26.19, and it was used earlier in Genesis when Jacob's hip was dislocated and was permanently wounded with a limp in chapter 32. This happened to him because he wrestles, quote-unquote, with God and men, as the one he is wrestling tells him. He is belligerent towards anyone who doesn't bend to his will. The next word is shama, which means waste or horror. Um, and then shamem, which is a related word, it means to be desolated or appalled. Of course, this is self-explanatory. This word is also used routinely to describe God's wrath when he makes cities and lands desolate and returns them to tohu wabohu. The next one we have is mitza, or matze, which means sucked out or empty. Uh, where shamim meant to be desolate, matze means to be empty. Again, this is following the same line. And all of these were Reuel's sons, the friend of God. So you once again see a very clear devolution. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs Teman, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gatam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Eda. These are the sons of Reuel, Esau's son, the chiefs Nehat, Zerah, Shammah, and Mitzah. These are the chiefs of Reuel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibama, Esau's wife. 
the chiefs Jayush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Oholibama, the daughter of Anah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. Here again we have a repetition, but it isn't a repetition necessarily. Again, the names are repetitions, but it really is a shift in function. Previously, we heard these names under the banner of, quote-unquote, the sons of Esau. Then, quote-unquote, the sons of Eliphaz, etc. Now, it is the chiefs of the sons of Esau. This word in Hebrew is aluf, and it is almost always associated with the Edomites. When it isn't, however, it refers to a leader of a group who is calm and put together like a cow or lamb, which is where the word actually comes from since those are two docile, peaceful animals with a steady and predictable mood. It's similar to the Bedouin Shaikh, who is a leader of the shepherd community, characterized by their old age, wisdom, courage, kindness, hospitality, etc. The Hebrew aluf comes from the root aleph, which is both the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet and the verb meaning to learn, and in the modern Israelite context refers to one who is a master of Torah, one who is learned and references God himself as such, being the one who teaches. There is no orthographical cognate similarity between this Hebrew word and the later Arabic word shaykh for the chief of a Bedouin tribe, but I think from looking at the uses of each word and what they stand for, they are almost identical in function. So what do we do with that? Well, we recognize the assertion of the text as it calls these people chiefs. This type of chief is evocative of the Bedouin lifestyle that we have referenced so much today. This facet of Esau's lineage seems to take up the mantle of that lifestyle because, again, we are getting a snapshot of early human civilization in the Middle East through the language and the names of this genealogy. All of the previously named sons of Eliphaz and Reuel and the sons of Oholibama, Esau's second wife, are named chiefs. These are the Bedouin tribes of the land of Edom. These are the sons of Seir the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. Lotan, Shobal, Zibian, Anna, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir, and the land of Edom. These are the sons of Lotan. Horai, Hamam, and Lotan's sister was Timna. These are the sons of Shobal. Alvan, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibian. Aya, and Anna, he is the Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zebion, his father. These are the children of Anna. Dishon and Oholibama, the daughter of Anna, these are the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Cheron. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zavan, and Akan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uts, and Aran. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Seir. Now we hear about the people who lived in the land Esau brought his family to. Remember the connection made between Esau and these people. The land is called Seir, and that comes from the root Seir, which is the word used to describe Esau at his birth, being hairy almost like he was destined to move here and incorporate with these people. An unknown character called Seir seems to be the patriarch of the people who inhabit this land as the land takes its name after him. His sons are Lotan, which comes from a root meaning to wrap closely or tightly. 
Then there is Shobal, which comes from a root meaning to flow. Then we have Zibion and Ana, both of which we've heard of as the ancestors of Oholibama. Uh, but as a reminder, though, Zibion refers to a hyena or colored stuff, and Ana refers to testifying or singing. The next one is Dishon, which refers to a mountain goat or something that threshes and leaps like a mountain goat. Then there is Ezer, which means treasure, and Dishon, which is a variation of Dishon and also means mountain goat. These are the sons of Lotan. The first one is Horai, uh, which is the name of the Horites, of course. Um, so this name refers to a hole or an opening or a cave. Uh, you could also say Hawar, as it could be pronounced with either pronunciation. So this root, Chet Waresh, refers to a cave on the one hand, but can also refer to something that grows white and pale. It's spelled exactly the same, with the only difference showing up in the Masoretic Hebrew with the different Nakud markers. Well, we're interested in the original Hebrew, where these distinctions do not exist. This is also the name of one of Moses' companions in the book of Exodus, who is commonly referred to as Hur. It comes from the same root. The next one is Hamam, which means to make noise or move noisily or confuse. And here we have yet another word that is used many times in the Bible in conjunction with God's wrath. Whenever God throws a community in confusion or destroys them, it uses this word. The next one is Timna, who is one of Eliphaz's concubines. Um, the root word here is mana, which is something withheld or, or held back. This word is used in the Bible when God is restraining someone. So hopefully we're seeing a theme here. The Edomite line is anything but shiny, and yet is merely just a reflection of any human society. Even the Israelites will experience a very similar descent into iniquity. The sons of Shobal were Alvin, which comes from the root Allah, meaning to go up or ascend. Then there is Manachat, which comes from the root Nuach, which means to rest. Next is Ibal, which might come from a root meaning to be bald, or bear, which makes sense because it goes with the next name Shepo, which comes from the root meaning to sweep bear. The last name is Onam, which means vigorous or wealthy. So these names of the various Horites who already inhabited the land don't go together as smoothly as the descendants of Esau at the beginning of the chapter, but at least we can see some qualities being laid out about the people. Remember the connection between the two people. The native Horites of this land were uh, those who belonged to Alufs or chiefs, and Esau's descendants are also described as having chiefs. Sure, we could be speculative and draw some literary conclusions based on these names and how they move from one to the other, but I think what is more useful uh, is to think of them as a vague tapestry. This is a diverse culture of people being described with their own chiefs uh, that Esau has come to be incorporated into. Next are the sons of Zibion, which first include Aya, which means falcon or hawk. The word can also mean a vulture. There is a connotation with this word that connects it to screaming, which, funnily enough, leads to the next one, which is Ama, that means to sing or testify. The sons of Ama were the Shon, which is the same name and meaning as earlier, of course, referring to a mountain goat. And then we have Oholibama, who we've talked about before, and as we should remember, it means tent of the high place. So next we have the sons of Dishan. So the first one is Himdan, which comes from Hamad, which means to desire or to take pleasure in. The next one is Eshban. This name now is a little bit uncertain. 
There is a possible connection with the name Shebna, which occurs within the character of the Ikonomos of King Hezekiah, who is taken away from his position of authority and replaced by Eliakim. The name has the connotation of growth, although of course it's still uncertain. Connecting Eshban with Shebna is interesting because it plays into the parallelism between the lines of Esau and Jacob. They are essentially the same. The next one is Ithran, which means to remain over or simply be left behind. This plays into the regal imagery. Next we have Karan. Now there's not much to go off in the original Hebrew because of the lack of occurrences. I looked in Lane's Arabic lexicon for the same root, and it doesn't appear there either. But keeping in mind uh, the use of anagrams in Semitic languages, most notably the name Lamech in Cain's line, there could also be a possible meaning with an anagram of this name. For example, Nakar, which is from Nun Kafresh, means something arduous or difficult, and it can also refer to something being disallowed. So this one is ultimately uncertain, so don't read too much into that, but it's also worth looking in depth at other Semitic languages when the Bible's usage is limited. Remember, Biblical Hebrew exists only in the Biblical text, so if a word is used only once or twice, it can be difficult to find a precise meaning, which is why Hebrew's sister languages come in handy as they do. Then we have the sons of Ezer, which are Bilhan, which comes from a root meaning to be troubled. Next is Avan, which comes from a root meaning to tremble or quake, and Akan, which comes from a root meaning to bend or twist. Next we have the sons of Dishan. The first one is Uz, which means to counsel or to plan. Now this is interesting because, uh, as we will see later, there could be, at least in the Septuagint, a connection between one of the Edomites and uh, Job. Which is interesting because Job is from the city of Uz, meaning to counsel, and his friends counsel him in lieu of his misfortune. So the next one is Aran, which means uh, to give a ringing cry. Again, this could also connect to the book of Job. The text then goes through the names again, attributing the title of Aluf or chief to some, but not all of the sons. The ones who are called chiefs are Lothan, which is a covering or a wrapping, Shobal or flowing, Zibion, or hyena slash colored stuff, Ana, or singing slash testifying, Dishon, or mountain goat, Ezer, or treasure, and Dishan, again meaning mountain goat. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinhaba. Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah, of Bothrah, reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Husham of the land of the Timonites reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Avit. Hadad died, and Samla of Masrekah reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shaul of Rehobot on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shaul died, and Baal-Hanan the son of Achbor reigned in his place. Baal-Hanan, the son of Achbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place, the name of his city being Pao. His wife's name was Mehetabel, the daughter of Matred, daughter of Mesahab. Now this part is interesting. We've referenced how Esau's Toledot essentially lays out the progression of early human civilization. So what we have here should be no surprise. We heard of the chiefs, the heads of tribes. Now we will hear of their city-dwelling counterparts, the kings. First is Bela, which means a swallowing or devouring, and of course sounds similar to Baal. 
And right off the bat, we have a negative connotation with the names of kings, opposed to the more neutral meanings of the chief's names. Bela is the son of Beor, which has two possible meanings. They could be from a root meaning brutish, ergo providing another negative connotation. The other possible meaning is that his name is the word ir, for city, with a bait preposition attached, thus meaning in a city. Again, this could very well be the authors planting the seeds that are the Bible's generally negative attitude towards city establishments. His city was called Minhaba, which could mean judgment was given, but there isn't a clear consensus among scholars as to the meaning of that word. Next is Yobab, which means crying in a shrill voice, and his father was Zerah, which means to rise, and he was from Bosra, which refers to an enclosure. Now, an interesting note about Yobab, or as it's written in English, Jobab, uh, which has been discussed before in discussions regarding the Septuagint, is that according to the Greek text of Job, this Jobab is the same as the character Job. This is interesting because it appears in a postscript detailing how exactly Job is linked to this character and mentions that it is from a quote-unquote Syriac book. Now, not getting too distracted by that last part, we have to ask why Jobab is identified with Job. For one, in the Hebrew, Job and Jobab are very different despite being similar names. As Rowdy said, Jobab means crying in a shrill voice. Job has the connotation of being hated, so the meaning takes on a different turn and is consistent with the story of Job. Interestingly, though, the meaning of Jobab is also consistent with the story of Job. Without getting too deep into that, since we have many other names to go over, I would posit that the Septuagint translators are doing two things with their extra paragraph at the end of the book. One, they are pointing the Greek audience back to Genesis, and particularly back to this very important genealogy. Two, they are highlighting the overarching theme of this genealogy, as well as the Ketubim in general, which is all about the universal outreach of the Torah and the scriptural God. It is well known that Job is linked to the Edomites because he is from the land of Uz. So he is not a Jew, nor is he even an Israelite. But he is the most dekeos, that is righteous, and the theosavis, which is the God-fearing out of anyone on the earth. It's another reminder that otheos in Greek, or Elohim in Hebrew, is the all-encompassing God and Father of all humanity, including and especially the Gentiles. And like the Israelites, humanity as a whole has descended into the stony grave of empire and urbanization ripe with iniquity, violence, and idolatry. This disproves the modern heresy that the Old Testament is for the Jews only. No, the Old Testament is just as interested in the nations and grafting them in to the Ecclesia Tutheu as the New Testament is. This genealogy as a whole is a witness to that. The next king was Kosham, which means haste, and he was from Teman, and that comes from the root meaning the right hand. Next is Hadad, which means a shout or cheer, who was the son of Bedad, which is likely from the noun Bad, and means emptiness or voidness, such as vain talking. So these two names also go together to produce another negative image. It says he was from the city of Awit, which comes from a root meaning to be amiss or to commit iniquity. There is also a detail that he is the one who battled Midian and Moab. Midian was a son of Abraham through Keturah, and Midian means something like strife or contention. 
After Hadad, the next king was Samla, which means a garment or covering, and he was from Masreka, which could be a reference to music or the red of the sorrel plant. After Samla, there was Shaul, which is actually the name Saul, like the later Israelite king Saul. But of course, translators want to keep them separate for their own purposes. Uh, so even though it is different in the English, it is actually the exact same word in Hebrew. There isn't even the Masoretic vowel uh, distinction. And of course, that name means asked for. This Saul is from Rechabot, which means broad places. And the text clarifies a proximity to some river. The ESV identifies the Euphrates, but the Hebrew doesn't say anything about a specific river, just, quote-unquote, the river. Uh, so maybe it's something from the Septuagint, I don't know. After Saul was Baal Hanan, which means Baal is gracious, or the Lord of grace, as, of course, the word Baal does mean Lord. And this is the first mention of Baal in the Torah, and we all likely know the significance of this character and name in Scripture. His father was Achbor, which means mouse. Next is Hadar, which means to honor or adorn. And his city was Pal, which means to groan and has a vocalic similarity to the word for mouth. So it is very evocative of agonizing sounds coming from the mouth. The text then tells us the name of his wife, which is Mehetabel. This means God does good. She was the daughter of Matred, which means to be constant or continuous and is an idiom that literally refers to constant dripping water. And she was the daughter of Mesahab, which means waters of gold. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau according to their clans and their dwelling places by their names. The chiefs Temna, Alva, Jetheth, Oholibama, Ela, Penon, Kenaz, Taman, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Aram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Adam, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. It's really interesting to me that the text is repeating the chiefs of Esau. We have three sets of chiefs that we are told about in total. The first set descended from Esau. The second set of chiefs were those of the Horites. Then we have the next set from Esau again, some of which uh, are repetitions from the first set of Esau. This is in contrast to the group of kings, most, if not all, of which have names that communicate some kind of negative connotation. Especially interesting is that some of the names that weren't explicitly stated as chiefs earlier that are in the second set are names of women, like Timnah and Oholibama. Right, and there's also the names like Jetet and uh, Penon, Magdiel, and Aram, uh, which are not mentioned earlier either. This, I would argue, is simply summarizing what we just heard, namely the descent of man. So starting with Jetet, this means something being fixed like a peg. Penon means something that is distracted. Magdiel means the Tower of God. And Aram means the exalted city. So it's fascinating when it introduces these names at the end that they all evoke the city life. So uh, with Jetet, remember that being fixed in place, it shows the sedentary nature of city life. Again, this is against the grain of scripture, which favors nomadic life. Penan means to be distracted, and it shows an inability to set one's ear firmly on God and to his people in the same way that a Bedouin's call is meant to organize his flock and keep them on the right path. Magdiel refers to the temple itself, namely something akin to the Tower of Babel. And finally, we have the conclusion, the city, which deems itself as exalted, just in case we missed the point along the way. Right. 
all of these names would have painted a very specific image uh, or maybe a vague image that simply elicited certain feelings and ideas to the original audience. And these are things that we have to work to get at. This episode is coming in at around 45 minutes long because we have put in that work. And what we have learned uh, is exactly what we just laid out for you, that these names are intentional and they elicit specific information in order for us to feel uh, and hear the story in a really specific way, that this is the progression, maybe the descent of human civilization. And it is with this awareness that the story will continue. It will continue to elaborate on a specific human civilization, which is that of Israel. Yeah, I mean, that's that's something to really pay attention to because, again, there's this idea within especially modern readings of the Bible that the real meat and potatoes when it comes to the narrative is that of Israel's story. But that's simply not the case. I mean, this is the story of all of human civilization. It's all of the nations. And Israel is just one that is that has particular focus because it's making a broader point, right, to be pointed out even then uh, is not a good thing. It's, it's, it's pointing out the flaws and how it, it exists in all of these uh, nations, but it focuses on one in particular. Yep. <laughs> if you made it this long, congratulations. We will see you next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network.